Welcome to another episode of the Myths That Make Us podcast. Today is a special one because we got two people on and they are intertwined in a sacred union in a way that inspires me and shows me what is possible. Their name is Azria and Benjamin, and they have given birth to this thing called Becoming. You can go check out what it is at becoming.me, and that's Becoming with a Q. And by the time that this podcast comes out, their first book, Becoming Everything You Didn't Know You Wanted, is going to be available. And me and Graham read it in like two or three days each, and we both looked at each other like, holy shit. This is one of the dopest books that we have read in a minute. It feels like a lot of the books that I read, they feel like they're from the past. And this is one of the books that I've read where it feels like it's the bleeding edge of what's happening now when it comes to, quote unquote, doing the work, coming into a relationship with someone else in a way that exposes you to all the work that you haven't done. And then once you've come together in union, how do you serve the world? And they might have the best current blueprint written down into a book that I've ever seen. So highly recommend. You guys are going to enjoy their vibe, and I'm sure that's going to convince you to check out this book and to check out what they're doing. So again, the book is Becoming with Q, B-E-Q-O-M-I-N-G. They have an Instagram by the same name, and you can check out their website, becoming.me. And given what's going on in the world right now, I wanted to take a moment to read a Instagram post that I wrote yesterday. Um, I've been feeling weird, like somatically, for the last couple of days. And I realized once I finished writing this that it was because... Because my brain was trying to process that for the first time in my life, it felt like there was a war that was breaking out that could lead to nuclear weapons. And that this is the first time in my lifetime where I've had to try to cope with this. And because I'm a writer and I hadn't written, I could feel that I hadn't processed what was happening inside of me. And as soon as I wrote this, I felt better. And so I wanted to share it with you all. I read a quote the day before a nuclear power declared war that read, If I knew the world ended tomorrow, I'd still plant my apple tree today. Martin Luther wrote that, and rereading it today broke through the soft, numbed fury that accompanied me as I tried to process war between Zoom meetings. The soft, numbed fury is an old friend from my past. He, my inner nihilist, looks out at my life and calls me Ozymandias. My life is dust. My meaning is ironic confetti. My hope is a joke. When he's home, the story of my life feels like a delusion. My dreams feel like evaporation. My work feels like coping. My stomach hurts. My eyes itch. I want to be alone. And yet, as this part points and disintegrates, a little feminine whisper somewhere behind my eyes whispers, 
She giggles as she asks, But can you be kind? I didn't have this voice before. My life the last few years has taught me. My apple tree that I will plant at the end of time is kindness. The titles, accolades, and objects are of dust and will return to dust. But our relationships are portals to the eternal. The only thing the nihilist in me cannot turn to ash is the raw sentience that emanates from eye contact. He cannot atomize the feeling of another relaxing into my arms. He cannot dismiss the deep sigh a nervous system offers when a hidden truth is shared. I save my life every day I plant my trees. I pray that if you feel hopeless or helpless, that your inner giggle leads you to eyes and hugs and kindness. All the machinations of the ego are rendered mute when we give ourselves in kindness to another. And may the following generations live in the forest that these seeds fruit. We have not evolved to be able to process all the emergencies in the world. And it's tough, and it's confusing, and it's hard. But what I return back to is be kind, be present, help where you can, and that includes yourself. So I wanted to offer that to all of you on a day like this feels weird to say. And if you enjoy this podcast, please, you know, sign up for my newsletter. Uh, so that's going to be my way of saying it. I hope you guys enjoy this podcast. Big love and go be kind. It has been uh, a while since I did a podcast because I've been busy doing this whole COO thing. And the podcast that's coming today is, I'm, I'm so fucking excited to have the two of you on. Uh, we have B and Azria, the motherfucking becoming king and queen. <laughs> and uh, by the time this comes out, there's going to be a book coming out that people are going to be able to read y'all's stories. But thank you. And um, I got to meet the two of you for the first time. I think it was probably like eight months ago now, maybe six. And the number one thing that I felt right away was this is the model for me about the type of union that I want to have with a partner. Mm. And the book really cements like the process that the two of you have gone through to show up in my life in that way, where that's the first thing that I felt was, wow, didn't know this was possible. I would like this, please. Mm. So thank you for that. And welcome to the podcast. Thank you, brother. It's an honor to be here. Truly, yeah. And the question, I'm just going to get right into it because I'm so excited to learn. Um, I would love to know what both of y'all's favorite story was when you were a child. So either the movie or the book, or maybe one of your parents told you a story. Uh, but, you know, I'm going to introduce everything about you guys in the introduction so we don't got to worry about that. People are going to know how fucking dope you are. I selfishly would like to know. What that story was. Well, first of all, you can't call us y'all. <laughs> <laughs> Gonna write that down. <laughs> yeah. um, I'll start. The first thing that came to mind when you, when you asked that question was kind of a funny story because I think it says a lot about me. And, I, and it's shown up again in now 
being in this relationship with Benjamin. But um, so I grew up in a very different kind of unique way. Like I, I, I had, so my parents were never married. My dad is much more kind of quote unquote normal, I guess. Um, and my mom is, is more on the woo-woo spectrum and always has been like a spiritual seeker and very into certain types of spiritual philosophies and very averse to like Western medicine and um, modern media. So that we, I didn't have a television. I wasn't allowed to really wow. engage with any kind of kind of modern digital content, even like pop music and stuff. So I listened to classical music growing up and I played with wood and clay and I felt it and I spent most of my time outdoors. A really pretty incredible childhood. But when my dad and I would get together, he would take me to the movies and he would take me to Blockbuster and he'd take me to get Chinese food and all this stuff, right? So it was always like a blast to go and wow. be with him. And I remember vividly when I was, I was pretty young. I must have been like maybe five or six. And Beauty and the Beast came out. Mm. And he took me to go see it. And I was just like, I mean, for a kid that doesn't get to watch movies, you know, movies yeah. are like real life. I mean, like you're, you can't tell the difference <laughs> between real life and the movie screen. So I would get so, and then I'm highly sensitive and empathic. So I'm like in it, right? I'm in it and I'm like falling in love with the beast. And I'm just like so into this love story. And then at the end, the beast turns into this prince. I don't know if you remember this part, but he oh, like, you know, all of a sudden this this burly, gruff, r- rugged, kind of flawed character that I had so deeply loved turns into this white, like boring, <laughs> vanilla <laughs> prince. And I was crushed, like devastated. Wow. Like I could not believe that that's how the story ended. And I remember coming out of the theater and I was crying so hysterically Whoa. for hours that my father just had no clue what to do with me. He was like, what? What have I done? So I think this is really interesting That's because fascinating. That's why she likes me so much. Exactly. 100%. <laughs> there's nothing prince about me. <laughs> well, but there's there's something very king about you. And yeah, there was yeah. something about the beast too, even though he was flawed and he had his shadow. It was like that what was so endearing about him was like he's not he's not perfect. He's not polished. Yeah. Um, and I think I've always been drawn to that archetype, certainly in the other sex. Like if I, when I came into my teenage years, my favorite movies were like Die Hard and like the bald, you know, kind of rough around the edges hero, but you know, unlikely hero. Um, and here we are. And look, I got myself a a Bruce Willis. (laughs) (laughs) I went the other way. I was really cute as a kid, more Prince looks. And then I just got uglier as I got older. (laughs) more rugged, sir. So the thing that's fascinating here is um, what I have to tend to explain to most people on the podcast, you two are just intuitively doing, and you can see that the movies that we're drawn to are a reflection of something deep inside of us, and we manifest it in our lives. And there's a couple of things here that I think are really uh, interesting, and then I'm excited to hear yours, is number one, uh, Carl Jung has this quote, until the unconscious is made conscious, it will control your life, life and you will call, call it fate. We just spoke that exact quote on the it's TEDx stage TEDx two talk. days ago. <laughs> it's so delicious. It's so good. And one way that I interpret that is the myths that we like take in as children set the course of our unconscious choice making. And something that I've seen recently in some of my friends around me is um, 
they chose a myth when they were young that was a tragedy. And they've gone through the cycle enough where they start to choose, I don't want the tragedy. And then they actively change the myth. And here, and also what's interesting is um, a movie came out recently called The Green Knight. It's incredible, but it's, it's a retelling of a King Arthur myth. And the director changes some aspects of the myth. And uh, the director has a scene around the close to the end of the movie where one of the characters is clearly a mouthpiece for the director. And the character is essentially saying, you know, I read all these great stories and I rewrite them for the next generation and I make edits where they could be improved. Mm. And you're not being in alignment with the like uh, modernization of the Beauty and the Beast story. Because what's interesting is like the core of almost all these uh, myths that Disney has turned into movies. If you go read the originals, they're not sweet. Mm -hmm. They're not sweet. And it's almost like there's an intelligence inside of us that knows that ending's not right. Mm. Like that ending is... Bullshit. It's bullshit. And so there's this invitation for like people who are starting to uh, come more into themselves. Like you can change some of these myths. So I love that even at a young age, you were like foul, not right. Yeah. Also, I think it, it illuminates that dynamic between the, the beauty and the beast is like she's afraid of him. She's afraid of his shadow, but she's also drawn to him. And they have these codes for each other. And I think that there's a really interesting parallel between fear and attraction. Mm. Um, like in the Gene Keys, Richard Rudd says, there, actually, you can't be sexually attracted to someone that you're not also on some level a little bit afraid of. Wow. And I think that's really interesting. And I definitely have felt that in this dynamic. You're um, welcome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because it's like I'd never been met with that much alpha male kind of like energy before both both the light of it and also the shadow of mm -hmm. it and it was really overwhelming especially for someone who didn't grow up with a father really really no masculine presence mm -hmm. in my life in that way so there was a foreign energy to that that also created a huge turn on for me that's incredible and there are some rabbit holes i could go down <laughs> but I'm not, i'd love to hear what your what your myth was as a child yeah i, I guess I'm not sure that I have, I'll answer that, I think, a little differently than you ask it. But the story that I guess was most powerful for me was um, the book, The Call of the Wild. And not for the reasons you might think. Uh, I really couldn't read as a child. And I, I read, The Call of the Wild was the only book that you could quote unquote say I read through high school. Wow. Uh, until I got to college, did I really ever like kind of figure out how to read? And I still struggle with reading. Um, and I have a life hack I'd love to share, but, yeah. um, I don't know how I first got it. I'm guessing my mother read it to me early, but I did five book reports on that through elementary school. Somehow I was able to pull it off where I wrote, wow. I wrote the same book. And, and so for me, I guess it was less about the story and the fact that I, I like actually had a book that I could, I could write, a, write about, um, because I was. I literally just could, I couldn't remember what I wrote because I was so dyslexic that I couldn't, I'd read a paragraph five times in a row and can't, couldn't remember what I read. And I couldn't stay present with it because I would like just go somewhere into ADHD. And yeah. so that was the most powerful story, I guess, because I could actually like, you know, tell it. Um, and as I've gotten older, I mean, and then to, to now have co-written a book and what was even harder was we read it on Audible. So the book is three voices, my voice, Asriel's voice, and then the we. 
So, so Asria did the audiobook, the Wii. She's a trained actress. And so she did the Wii in a British accent. So it's different. It's really cool. But I read the Audible book and, you know, Asri would walk in there and just fart out a chapter, like, you know, like just read it without making a mistake. And I'd be like, how? <laughs> and I was like a bumbling buffoon, but thank God for editing. But, uh, you know, to go full spectrum from not being able to read to being on, to reading my own book um, was, wow. was a real milestone. And um, so now I have this great, I read probably a book a week or every couple of weeks. And, but I, I listen to it on Audible with the hardcover in front of me. Mm. And because I have both going, and I'd listen to it at two times speed. So it, I can't, I don't have time to daydream or go anywhere. And wow. I actually assimilate books um, so much now and just plow through them. And it's so exciting to be able to be like a reader. Wow, that's um, really interesting. Yeah, so it's it's you know I read a ton now, and it's, it's been a game changer. But I I think that book I would say was the most that story was the most powerful because it it allowed me to actually write a book report in in an environment where I couldn't. And, and back then, like dyslexia and was there wasn't even a diagnosis. Like I've actually never been diagnosed. I know I'm dyslexic. I know I'm ADHD, but I've never you know back then they didn't even address those things. Mm -hmm. So. That was the most impactful. What was your favorite movie as a kid? I don't know if I'd have a favorite, um, but I loved all the you know the Star Wars and all the the, the stories. I was going to date myself and say like there was a, st a, a show I used to watch, but it really dates me. <laughs> <laughs> Do it. But there was a show Flipper. I don't know the dolphin. Uh -huh. Uh, that I really loved. And I loved this kid's because he, he was always independent. He was just doing his own thing. I was always really independent as a kid. And so the idea of just like getting in the boat and just going and he'd have a whole adventure throughout the day and then come home. And so I, I really loved the, the freedom he had to like be in his own world. Um, so I, I don't know why that popped in my head. I, I probably haven't thought of that in you know 30 years. And that's the magic of this thing. So the thing that I'd love to share with you guys, um, and you guys can take it forward in whatever way it resonates, but that... Um, because of my background in Jungian psychology, I deeply believe that we have a force inside of us that is uh, incredibly intelligent, incredibly old, incredibly massive, and it's watching our lives alongside our ego. And the way, there's many ways it talks to us, but one of the ways it talks to us is through uh, what we're interested in. Because mm. an interesting thing to feel into is you don't have free will about what you're interested in. There's something inside of you that grabs your awareness and like draws you to a thing. Interesting. And it's like, why? What is that? And uh, like a part of my, you know, hypothesis or intuition is that in the same way that the genetic codes inside of a seed knows what type of structure it's meant to be, and it's trying to absorb from the environment all the materials it needs to do that transformation. We come into the world with a sacred work or a dharma to do. And that force inside of us is always scanning our environment for the things that if we were grabbed by would help us become that. And so as a child, you were watching a show about a dolphin, but your dharma, the thing inside of you was like independence, mm. grab that. Adventure, grab that. And for you, it was, we got to learn how to dance with a beast, grab that, mm. you know? And that the... The movies and the stories that we hear um, are one of the first things that that energy inside of us goes and grabs. And what I've observed is like children, 
like two and three and four years old, if they find a movie they like, they want to watch it over and, and over, over and <laughs> over. If there's a fucking book they like over and yeah, over. Tell me about it. And I, and I think it's that spirit inside that's like, there's something here. Totally. I'd, I'd love to add to that. There's a, an interest. So I think that what, what you're sharing really resonates. And in the book, we, we talk about it as soul curriculum. Like there's something that your soul came here specifically and uniquely to experience, right? So we, we believe that you're designed, that, that energy you're talking about that chooses through you. Um, what you're interested Chooses in. Chooses through you. I like that. Yeah, is 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 kind of like already there, right? You, you come imprinted with it. And so that's looking at it like on like each individual level, right? But then if you look at like more of the collective energies that we're dancing within, and we're very interested in the alpha, omega, or masculine, feminine polarities. And I don't know if like you could kind of use them interchangeably. We've been trying to move more towards alpha and omega to get away from right. masculine, feminine, just because it's, it does have gender, gender kind of bias in it. But, um, but I've been really fascinated by the teachings of Justin Patrick Pierce and London Angel Winters, who are a, a couple that do sacred intimacy work. And um, they really dive deep into these polarities and how much we are all affected by them, you know? And so there's, like if it, when I hear both of our stories, I see it through that lens now mm. of the alpha and omega polarities. So the omega, which is what we would traditionally call like the feminine principle, is a primarily like love-driven principle, which you you know shows up in the Beauty and the Beast story. Like it's a love story at the end of the day, right? It's that deep like loving in spite of the fear, in spite of the shadow, like yeah. um, love that transcends all. That's what the omega is always yearning for. And then the alpha is always yearning for freedom. Mm. And so the flipper story, right? The independence, like I'm going to go off and do my own thing and no one can tell me what to do. Um, so this is the, the dynamic of polarity between these two poles that creates all of this beautiful tension, but can also create all of this intense conflict. Yeah. Because the, the feminine wants that, like, wants to be penetrated by this love and the, the 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 masculine or the alpha wants to go and penetrate life, go penetrate the world and um, and feel completely free in, in that ability to penetrate. And so it's this really interesting dynamic. And I think when we can understand it through not just are there these sort of, I agree with you, I think every human being has unique forces that are that are choosing through us, as you said. But then there's also these collective forces that are choosing through us. And I think for me as a woman who is very omega and, and who is a very love-driven being, one of the things that has been most healing on my journey, in specifically in romantic partnership, has been the true realization and understanding that that yearning for love is never meant to be satiated. It actually can't be. Right. It can be for a moment can be temporarily, but it's it's actually part of what makes me, me. It's relentless. It's relentless, as we like to call it <laughs> in this relationship. No, but it really is. Like, it's kind of amazing. It's like this bottomless pit of just infinite, like, more. I want more love. I want more. I want more view. I want more presence. I want more whatever. Yep. Fill in the blank. And uh, and so having that that makeup, that that natural design, and for a while feeling like there's some, there must be something wrong with me because I have this insatiable desire for love and, and to be filled by love. But realizing that it's actually just part of my experience in this lifetime to feel the, the joy of the yearning. 
The joy of the yearning. The joy of the yearning. And same on the other side for the masculine, right? Like so many men traditionally have a hard time committing to relationships because they want to go and have that freedom and spread their seed and all the things which we're biologically programmed to do. Um, But to also realize that the freedom that they seek externally can only ever lead to more desire to find more freedom, right? It's Mm -hmm. not, that also can't be satiated. You could be the freest man in the world and still not feel free because the true freedom you seek is from your own desire, your own, your own (laughs) ego's need to feel free. It's the fucking paradox of it. So it's so cool because I have actually both of those energies very strongly in me. For sure. And um, being able to see them through that framework has been very healing for me. Our friend Zahara has a quote that we really love. It's uh, finding the breadth of freedom in the depth of commitment. Yeah. And so that's the alpha mm-hmm. um, expression of it, right? Well, There's, yeah, it's the, it's the, it's the united polarity. There's <laughs> <laughs> <little> shout out. <laughs> so many beautiful threads in there. Uh, um, one, I'll kind of just go backwards, but the finding freedom in commitment or constraint. Like a really elegant example is there's like a, a game that psychologists will put participants through where they basically say, okay, we're going to play a game. It's your turn. And what 99% of people do is they sit there and they don't do anything because there's not enough constraint for them to even have the will to make an informed choice. But then if you put a checkerboard in front of them and you don't say anything else other than it's your turn, the symbol of constraint of the checkerboard allows them to actually make choices and to do. And then the other example is with a road. If there's no marks on the road, we're going to die this morning trying to get here to on it, you know? But with just a little bit of constraint, there's the freedom of not dying on the road every day. And so uh, people who say that they want full freedom, it's like, Uh, You probably want a little bit of commitments to a couple of things. And um, to the Omega and Alpha, um, I do think that it's inside of each of us. And it's interesting to see how, um, like, I've watched people who feel like they, they are best served if they're in one of those polarities. But if they've gone through trauma... Or if they're in the midst of a transformation, it's almost like their psyche will force them to be over in that other place. And the thing that I have felt into specifically in relationships is that if someone has hurt you in a way that you haven't forgiven, which fundamentally means because you don't have understanding for why they chose to act the way that they acted, it's almost like the next relationship your heart draws you to puts you into the position that they were in almost force you to understand how a good person who loves the other person would choose to act that way until you like accept the alchemy of like, oh, maybe they're not an evil, terrible sociopath. Maybe I was telling a story and there's this interesting swing. And I guess this brings me to the last thing, which is like the essence, I think the essence of a song is to be danced to. It's not to be satiated and not dance, you know? And I think there's a lot of people who think that uh, if I still have desire, I'm doing it wrong, Mm -hmm. you know? But then there's this part of me that's like, or maybe just listen to the song and listen to what your body wants to do. A body wants to dance to music. 
you know, and this feeling of being satiated or being healed or being done with the work, it feels like it has this sense of like, I want to be done dancing. And it's like, motherfucker, you're alive and you're drawing breath. The song's going, the dance is inviting you. Yeah. Beautifully said. Yeah. So the, the next question that came up was, um, I would love to invite you to uh, tell the story of Into the Wild as if you were telling a bedtime story to one of your children. And I'll explain afterwards why I'm asking this question. But the invitation is like, so it's not a recounting of the story where you're trying to like get everything right. You know, like if you were putting one of your children to sleep at night and they asked you to tell them a bedtime story, the invitation is that you tell us like we're your child, like in the voice. So don't explain it. Just be like, once upon a time, and then just allow it to come through, and then I'll offer afterwards. Why? Then he'll psychoanal- psychoanalyze you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm actually psychoanalyzing you right now, but I'll explain it. <laughs> yeah, the funny part is, is I, I did the book report so many times. I think I put it out of my mind. I don't, I don't know if I remember it that well. Um, okay. And the essence, and because um, if you could just extract out. Like what that story did for you and just use that as the inspiration to tell the story. It's not just for me to psychoanalyze. It truly, uh, there is a function of storytelling that I think is the most healing linguistic gift that people can give, period. And that um, when people drop into this, uh, we get the opportunity to have a bedtime story told to us. And I think that's one of the highest medicines. So it's not just like a here, do a thing and I'll dissect you. Like that's not what this is. Okay. I'll try and be brief. Uh, so there's a, there's a story of a man who has a, a group of dogs and one of the dogs is really weak and um, insecure. And over time and with trust, he learns to um, be a leader and ends up being one of the strongest uh, dogs in the pack and um, creates a, a special bond and ends up carrying many of the other dogs in the pack. And so it's a story of perseverance of triumph, um, and of love. Beautiful. And I'm not even going to dissect it because you guys all get it. <laughs> the uh, next invitation is I would love for you to tell a bedtime story. Like your child was like nine or 10 and they were like, will you please tell me a story, mom? And you were going to tell Beauty and the Beast, not from memory, but from heart, with the ending that you think is the right ending. Mm, that's good. So there's this very sort of elegant, polished uh, princess. And she has all the fancy things and she lives a very comfortable life. And then one day she's traveling through the forest in a horse-drawn carriage. And the the carriage breaks down and it looks like things are really not going well for her. Um, the forest is dark and dangerous. And there's 
robbers and all sorts of potential threats, wild animals. And she has to run to try and find help. And so she makes her way through the dark wood and she's terrified and her fine clothes are being ripped and torn and her hair is blown about by the wind. And she finds a large castle that is lit up. She enters the castle and inside of it, she is greeted by emptiness initially. But then she begins to realize that there is an inhabitant of this castle and this inhabitant is a terrifying figure, the beast. And he is rude and disconcerting to her and they don't get along. But she has no choice. She's trapped. She has to stay there. And over time, they start to open up to each other. And she begins to share some of her medicine, her feminine wisdom, her kindness, her compassion. And he begins to soften his edges and open his heart. And then they fall in love. And she accepts him just as he is. And he allows her to penetrate his heart and open it further and further and further until the true beauty of his being is able to shine through. And they live happily ever after. She's much better at that. (laughs) (laughs) I disagree. There's two different styles. Some are really to the point and some have a little bit more garments around them. Both are beautiful. I also gave her time to prepare and you were directly on the spot. So it's just is the way that it is. Um, The thing that I have found that whenever I really connect to it, just absolutely blows my mind is I've done this with over a hundred people, every single person. If you ask them to retell their favorite childhood story, as if they were telling it to one of their children, the way they tell the story is so loudly, clearly one of their core myths Mm -hmm. that, that has guided the way their entire life has unfolded. Um, it's just, it's such a curious, interesting thing. You know, it's like, um, is it that we found that model and that model informed the choices that we made going forward? Or, you know, there's this beautiful idea in Jungian psychology that we're born with daemons and your daemon is essentially like your guardian angel. And to the proportion that the bigness of your daemon and your full blossoming lives in the future, is the degree to which it handicaps you as a child because there's something about like the weight of it waiting in the future is so heavy that like it cripples you in a specific Mm. way. And there's a great book. I wish I could remember what it was called, but this author explains this idea. And it's like um, one of the greatest bull riders of all time was a little terrified boy. Um, there was another example of someone who was meant to be a dancer and like for the first couple of years of their life, like they just could not fucking do anything athletic with their body. And, um, you know, I feel into your story about the reading or my story about the speaking. And it's like, it's a really beautiful idea. But so with that idea, it's like, Maybe the stories that we resonate with inform how we make choices and there's no, you know, there's no, it's just, you know, it's easily explainable through the scientific lens. Or there's a force inside of you whispering to you 
what the what was the phrase that you used? The choice that chooses you? The choiceless choice. Well, we 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 call it the choiceless choice in our book, but I was saying the choice chooses that chooses you. through you. God, that's so yeah. good. So, or maybe there's this thing inside of you that's, you know, trying to help you become the thing that you're meant to be. And so I appreciate the two of you, you know, going on the spot and sharing what that story is. Uh, I felt how much you hated me for asking you. <laughs> and, and I appreciate you still playing the game. Um, so I'd love to open it up about whatever feels alive for you about like what threads to go down. But I also have more questions, but I want to kind of pass it to y'all and see what comes up. Well, I just wanted to share that when I when I ended this story, I chose to end it with they lived happily ever after. And I was kind of like, in the moment I went with it, but I, I think that that's a really interesting concept to like look at Completely and pull apart. Agree. And uh, also this is my opportunity to make up for the fact that I, I skipped this paragraph in our TED talk. I missed it. But we talk about this idea of like the Hollywood happy ending, right? Mm. And, uh, and and in our, in our story specifically, because we, for those of you that, you know, don't know our story, but we got married the first time inofficially, like it wasn't legal, but it was really like we had a full ceremony around it. And that was kind of like, the, okay, you made it. Like, you, you, you know, you found each other, you celebrated, you committed, you have this beautiful home. You're now you're going to live happily ever after. Right. And of course, <laughs> life is not like that in, in reality. And so that's really when it all began. And and like the the curriculum that we were triggering in each other started to surface. And those deeper layers of fears and insecurities and wounds and patterns and all that stuff started to come forward. Um, and we, we just continued to deepen through that process and also came to points where we didn't know if we would continue. Mm-hmm. Uh, and kind of kept having to choose each other and that process again and again. And then we're able to come to a whole nother layer of intimacy and depth where we then decided to get legally married. But the journey there was like a process. And also, you know, even after that, like there have, there have been moments uh, and I, this is commitment has been such a big initiation for me in this way. Um, It's brought up a lot of things related to my childhood and woundings and stuff, which I won't need to, I don't need to get into the specifics of, But in the TED Talk, we talk about how, you know, what we think we want is the is the happily ever after, right? We think we want the the harmony in our relationship forever and ever. But what we really want, what we don't know we want, but what we really want is actually an honest, authentic, and trustworthy reflection of ourselves through the eyes of another, which will inherently trigger all of our deepest wounds and insecurities Mm -hmm. and will force us to evolve. And that's the new paradigm of the Hollywood happy ending. Yeah. And it's it's what comes after you ride off into the sunset together. So I, I really think that that's a very important code to bring forward in our collective psyche and how we hold the frame that we hold around partnership and union and marriage and all these things today is really like it needs an upgrade. Completely agree. Um, because if you look at what we have in terms of reference points and archetypal reference points, it used to be like the monarchy, right? That the common folk would look up to and be like, oh, look at the king and queen and how amazing. And, and there was this huge gap. Now it's like Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie or, you know, it's like the, the, the Hollywood celebrity is kind of the closest thing we have to that dynamic. Um, but these are our external global reference points yeah. and almost all of them end in devastating heartbreak and really <laughs> nasty divorces and, <laughs> you know, lawsuits and all the things. So 
on the one hand, we're sold this idea that we should live happily ever after. On the other hand, we're being confronted with all this evidence that that's actually not possible. Right. So it's really hard to like know, you know, what is really true and what is really possible. And so I think, yeah, that reframe is important. I think I'll just add, um, David Brooks has a book called The Second Mountain that really resonates for us. And he talks about commitment and uh, marriage in depth. And he talks about this idea that, you know, we seek freedom, but real freedom is actually choosing one thing, right? Can you imagine like how much energy does it take to be out searching the world for partnership, right? Yeah. Or whatever. But actually, when you commit to something fully, it'll, it gives you tremendous freedom because now all that energy that was searching for something um, is, is, is available for all the other areas of your life you want to focus. And the, the, the most free decision you can make is actually choose something fully. 100%. Yeah. There's a couple of things that come up that <clears throat> I'm excited to try to uh, share with you guys. One is that uh, one of the biggest misunderstandings that I see um, around like the happily ever after idea is, so m- most people aren't even aware of the idea of the hero's journey. Mm-hmm. But the people who are aware of the hero's journey, uh, there's this belief that once you go through the you know death, rebirth, and then coming into what your medicine is, and then you bring it home, and they think that that's the end. I got this incredible reframe from uh, Stephen Pressfield, the man who wrote The War he, of Art. He lives like walking distance from our house. <laughs> yeah, oh, he's wow. our neighbor. Yeah, we've, wow. we've had him over. We've had uh, lunch at his house. Yeah. yeah, that's beautiful because he's he's actually the person that like I've been. So Jung was the dude that kind of planted the seed of even the idea of the hero's journey. And then Joseph Campbell was the one that made it like more famous around our time. And now, thank God, it's really pumping through the zeitgeist. And it's one of the most incredible stories that we have, period, because it's the archetypical story of how consciousness transforms. So good shit. Mm -hmm. But what Stephen Pressfield talks about is the hero's journey is for the person who hasn't woken up, who wakes up and finds their gift. And then after the hero's journey, that's when, in Stephen Pressfield's work, the artist's journey begins. And the rest of your life is cycles of the artist's journey. And the artist's journey is essentially, all right, you found your medicine, go get good at it, pay attention to what's happening, offer it. And then as soon as you offer it, you have to start over. Like you've made the thing, like he has this great quote, but you know, he spent like 20 years trying to write his first book. And the day he finished his first book, he started it. He's like, start the next one. Mm -hmm. And so in the like transformation of consciousness, we got the, we thought we got the happily ever after. And it's like, you know, go defeat the dragon and come home. But what we're starting to realize, like the new code is that's the fucking beginning Mm -hmm. of the rest of your life as an artist. And I'm feeling that there's this parallel with relationship where it's like all the stories we've ever gotten is the hero's journey version, you know, which is like, it brings you to the thing. And then once you're in the thing, it's not happily ever after on what it could be, but it's going to be a spiraling recurrent. Oh, you're being an honest reflection of this part of me that I hate that I project out onto other people and you're going to make me look at it. Fuck you. You know, and it's just <laughs> over and over and over yeah. and over. Well, I, I think that um, we look at curriculum that way. Right. And so a lot of people, 
even if you break it down in a, in a smaller way, if you believe the universe is benevolent and the universe is going to work in your favor and continue to give you curriculum so that you can grow into the highest expression of yourself, then it, it's never ending. And so um, hmm. you, you pass an exam, right? You, you, you make it past a point and, and you're like, okay, I got life figured out. Life is good now. What's the oh, universe wow. going to do? The universe is going to give you more curriculum. Yeah to step into that highest expression of yourself. And it's never ending. And so when you start looking at life that way, mm. instead of like, oh, woe is me, I have this new challenge or I have this new problem. It's like, okay, the universe thinks I'm ready for another challenge. Let's go. And just changing that framework takes it from being like this stress, right? To being like, no, like, okay, I have another challenge. I'm ready to go. Let me step into this. And so it's, it's a similar that. energetic there, right? Yeah, I also think like we talked about the the Hollywood happy ending, right? And and that's kind of like the other side of it. But then I also think that there's a real a really interesting conversation around the beginning of a relationship, like the honeymoon phase, which if you've read the more scientific literature on that, it's like, you know, your your body's being hijacked by all these you know, chemicals basically, like it's- We're going to trick you to make babies and stay exactly. for two years. Evolution yeah. is just trying to, exi- exactly, trick you to get really deep with this person and is putting the rose-colored glasses on you so that you don't see their flaws and you kind of, you're living in this dream world illusion land, right? And then over time, wait for it, but like that shit's going to wear off. You're going to come down and then you're going to find yourself in this relationship with someone who is flawed and does- fart at night and, you know, <laughs> on you. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, uh, Shout out to page 186 <laughs> in the book. <laughs> yeah. And like, and then you're going to be kind of in this place of dissatisfaction and you're going to start wondering where is that next hit going to come from, you know, right. and where's that next exciting new thing going to start to evoke that same feeling of, of connection. And, and I really have because my experience of falling in love, which in and of itself sounds kind of like a victim statement, right? I'm like, this is happening to me. Um, but my experience of that is that it's really profound and very sacred. 100%. And when we met and the, what happened between us in a very short period of time, like what we went through was maybe... I mean, I've sat in a lot of ayahuasca ceremonies. I've done a lot of really trippy psychedelic things, but like it was probably the most profound thing that that I'd ever experienced consciously before. Like feeling that level of just boundary dissolving, pure love is what it felt like. And the part of me that has like, well, I've, I've fallen in love before and it's fizzled. You know, that part of me was also present in this process and I was aware of it. And I, I wrote a whole spoken word poem around it early on because I was like, well, I'm so deathly afraid of losing this. And what if this really is an illusion, as science would say it is, right? And um, I recently listened to Marianne Williamson talk about romantic love. And she was talking about The the Course in Miracles. And she, she had this really beautiful reframe on that. And she said, in The Course of Miracles, it's actually the opposite. That feeling that you have in the beginning is spontaneous enlightenment. It's a gift and it's real. It's the realest real. It's because it's true love. You're seeing the person through the lens of perfection, which is what is actually true. And that period of time is designed to get you to bond and create a container. And Mm. then the illusions start coming back in. The perception of flaw, the perception of 
wrongness or not enoughness or whatever starts to creep in. And that then is your curriculum. But you've had, you have this reference point of what it feels like to see the other person through that lens of perfection. And I thought that was so beautiful because it feels really true to me. Um, And my experience is that that lens of perfection is, it's a choice, you know, it's, that's ultimately what it is. And that's the most empowering thing to realize is because I have this reference point, I can choose. Benjamin even said it to me once. I was uh, early on. He 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 did something or said something that most people would find probably like obnoxious or rude, and I was like turned on by it. And he was like, "Watch, you know, in six months, yeah. like <laughs> this is going to be the exact thing that triggers you." And so, it is funny how that can happen, right? Yeah. Like the thing that turns you on about someone can later become the thing that is like the most annoying thing about them. <laughs> um, but really realizing, like, or not. Right. Or I could just choose to like be enamored by this and love this because it's possible. And I know it is. Are you trying to say that I've annoyed you at any point? <laughs> at any point? No, baby. Never. <laughs> Not once. <laughs> a, a third perspective that comes up to complement both of those that you shared. I've never heard that uh, perspective and I fucking love it. Spontaneous enlightenment. And then the illusions slowly start to roll back in like mm-hmm. fog and you got to see through that. The... Um, third perspective, and this is one that I've resonated with for a while, is in the Jungian context, um, you have your persona, which is the part of you that you've created to face the world. And then each of us have a anima slash animus, depending on what biological gender we are, which is how we relate to our internal landscape. And so uh, B, you would have a anima, which is like a feminine expression of the soul. That's what the word means in Latin. And for you, you would have an animus and that's the masculine expression of soul. And that when we meet someone that has the just right, like physiological and psychological boundaries, we cannot help it. Our anima or animus goes and they hold it for us. And we actually fall in love with our soul. But mm. they're holding the container almost like a frame of a TV. It's a reflection. They have the just right border and we project our soul onto it. But they also, our soul can't just be held by anyone. You know, it's like it's the just right person at the just right time to hold it. And then for the next like eight to 12 months, um, the pixels of that. TV slowly start to flip from soul projection to who they actually are. Oh, interesting. And in the same way with optical illusions, like when you look at one long enough, at some point it just spontaneously flips. Once enough of those pixels change place, there's a foreground background reversal. And we just wake up one day and we're like, who the fuck are you? (laughs) And that what they explain in like the Jungian psychology is that's the beginning of the relationship. Mm. The beginning of the relationship with the other human is the moment that foreground background thing happens. And that the gift that they gave you was to help you connect to your soul. And that from that point forth, it's your work to connect to that thing inside of you. Does that resonate with you? I mean, it's a really interesting lens. It's that a I, really interesting lens. I'm just wondering. Yeah. Like you are my, the, the masculine expression of my soul is how I'm right. understanding it. Mm-hmm. And you're the kind of the embodiment of that or the frame that can hold that in a exactly. way that's unique to me. Um, 
And then also the, the concept that at some point you start seeing somebody clearly and you didn't before. Yeah. I guess I, I love it in theory, but it doesn't resonate as, as like, at least in this relationship, like where I woke up one day and I'm like, oh, I see you clearly. I felt like I, I saw you clearly from the first day. Hmm. But it's very interesting. Yeah, it's really, I'd have to sit with that one. Yeah. I'd have to sit with that one. And one, sure. one of the things that I'm feeling into is uh, I've shared this story at like different workshops and things with hundreds of people and it resonates with almost everyone. But most people, I would say, that are at these things haven't found what this is. Oh, yeah. And so there's an interesting thing to feel into. It feels like it's almost required curriculum that you go through that type of experience that the Jungians are articulating two, three, four relationships until you finally start to sense like, oh, and then you integrate your anima or your animus for yourself so that you actually have clear eyes and that actually might open them up to a new type of relationship. Like, so this is super interesting. Mm. Um, the thing about academics is they're fucking awesome, but they tend to not be in the world much to like have the transformations of themselves. And so I don't know about any Jungian who has written a book about this in the sense of that myth seems to be great for people who haven't integrated the projection of their inner other. Mm -hmm. And that maybe once you do do that work and you're single and then you meet someone, you might actually have the opportunity to have clear eyes and to actually see them from the beginning. Yeah, that's really interesting you mentioned that because my question was, I'd love to know what Carl Jung's romantic relationship experience was. <laughs> like what was, his, no really, like <laughs> no, his lived experience because it's, it's. This is great. Yeah. So, and maybe you know, because you seem to I, know a lot about him. I do. And it's, <laughs> It's great because it never gets talked about. And what I love is the wisdom in you to ask that question, which cuts directly to the heart and will expose some interesting things. <laughs> um, I'm sorry, Young, but I got to tell the truth. Um, he married um, one of the richest women in the country that he was in and then basically ended up quote unquote, having affairs, but the affairs were done in a way where his wife always knew and he had enough mana or like he was essentially doing like polyamory a hundred years ago when no one was talking about it. And then a big part, and this is a whole thread that we don't need to go down, but uh, he had a four year like psychosis that he like healed himself through that became the foundation of every major psychological idea that he had shared with everybody mm. and um, everybody, everybody. <laughs> and that the essence of it, um, like I kind of lost my thread. What was I just talking about? You were saying that he had, yeah, he was doing polyamory a hundred years ago. Before. Oh, right. And that um, when he had his four-year psychosis and he started getting messages from the deep, one of the big uh, downloads that he got was that he was going to that he was being asked to envision a new type of relationship model for a new type of world, but he never really went back to that. But um, so he had his most stable dynamic was he was married, but he also had this mistress that was like his main muse for a lot of his psychological ideas. And his wife would try to leave him every couple of years and he would get super sick. 
and he wouldn't know why he was getting super sick. Hmm. And there's actually a really epic story where he was, um, she was trying to leave and this was the final time that she was trying to leave. I think it was the third time. And he's in the middle of the house, like asking and begging for her to stay. And the children report this after the fact that there started to be, uh, um, what's the right word? Weird things started to happen in the house as he was getting more and more agitated that felt like uh, doors were opening and closing. There were like dishes breaking in the kitchen and uh, they don't know exactly what it was. But once his partner decided to like not leave, everything in the house started to come down and relax. So interesting. that's kind of a... So do you think that he had, when you use the word mana, but like, do you feel like he had energetic sort of almost sorcery or magician skills on the energetic planes where he was able to really like manipulate matter in that way? I don't know if he ever got conscious access to it, but there's a really famous story about the first time he met Freud. They talked continuously for like 13 hours. And at the very end of the conversation, they kind of got into a heated debate about I don't know what it's called, but there's essentially this idea of um, that like spontaneous physical occurrences can happen around you that are basically like not explainable through science. Mm. And Freud was like, that's not possible. Mm. And Jung started to get agitated. And he's like, it's about to happen. And Freud was like, what are you talking about? And then there's this loud popping sound that happens like above the ceiling of the room. And then uh, Jung was like, See, and then Freud started to try to explain it, and Jung like was like, "I can feel it in my body again. It's going to happen again." And Freud was like, "What are you talking?" And it happens again. Oh shit! And they both like write about this event, and they're like, you know, journals and shit. So I think he had a little bit of mana. Mm-hmm. Wow, interesting. That's cool. Very interesting. We. uh uh, the retreat center that we're building, we were going to call it Ser Mana, which said in Spanish is to be mm. Mana. To be life force. I love that. That feels like that uh, is more and more synchronicities. There's this thing that I've been asking people to do that I've been working with of uh, <clears throat> like tracking the ways that culture teaches us to gaslight our spiritual nature. And one of the things that I was feeling into was um, when we say that was crazy or that was wild or that's weird. Like, no, that's a synchronicity Mm. or that's beauty or that's a message. You know, and so like uh, relaxing into the fact that not to play small basically with my language. Mm. Yeah. And to trust that the universe is benevolent and things, you know, it's, we're co-creating with 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 spirit with the universe uh, i think is really important yeah one way of responding to those types of things that i've noticed come online just in the vocabulary in my community is but of course mm, i love that but of course <laughs> but of course <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's in the last with i think the the work i've done with the medicine over the last 3 years uh has really built that into me where like now it's like i feel, i just feel like we're we're co-creating and when the challenge comes up, as we talked earlier, it's like, okay, this is just curriculum. I'm meant to learn something. What am I meant to learn? Oh, this beautiful, the door open right as it should. Like, 
beautiful. I'm supposed to go this way. And like you develop, I think with, with practice, you develop like in the same way that Young could sense that this thing was about to happen. Like you, you just start to like be like, oh, okay, like I see, I see why this is happening. And if I can't see why it's happening, uh, I still trust. Like I can't see it consciously, but I, I trust that I'm meant to learn something. So let's lean into this. If we were to feel into you know the myths that make us, uh, what feels like the story that you guys are most excited about to bring to? The collective because there's been some hints here and there um and i think just that story alone of what you shared of that what if the universe was fundamentally good and intelligent and working on your behalf to help you become the highest expression of yourself and that there's no limit to that and as long as you're alive you're going to continue to get invitations to curriculum just that alone would be an absolute fucking game changer for most people on this planet but if we gave you guys the opportunity to like share what your story would be that you're hoping to you know bring to the zeitgeist what does it feel like Mm. yeah i think before even answering that i think just to kind of exclamation point is all these these principles or ways of viewing the world are really just a practice right and so it might sound great to say like you just view every challenge as curriculum and you lean into it but it it's fucking hard and and the the universe is relentlessly working in your favor and going to relentlessly give you curriculum and if it's easy curriculum and if you can just absorb it easily then the universe isn't supporting you in the way it should and so it's going to be fucking hard and it's going to be hard to say okay like i don't want this thing to be happening i'm in resistance to it so i'm causing suffering within myself and to be conscious enough to like step back and say, okay, like this curriculum, I'm going to lean into it. I'm supposed to learn something. What is it? Let's go. Um, it's not easy. Yeah. And it's a real, real practice. So I guess I just wanted to highlight that because sometimes you, you know, you, you, you share a cool principle on a podcast and it's like, you're a guru on a mountaintop or something, but far from it. Like, you know, the, the greatest curriculum is just life. Yeah, and I guess I'll I'll answer that question from a little bit more of a meta perspective. Um, my work with the plant medicines, it tends to be very meta. Things tend to get very, I mean, of course I get personal things as well, but I always go very galactic with my <laughs> lens. Um, and so I guess the the myth that I feel is shaping my mission and my community's mission largely not everyone but a lot of people in my community also have received these this this this, these types of codes and i don't know if i love the word myth because it's sort of implicitly it almost sounds like it's just made up right but i hear what you're saying like like the the story structure that that is kind of shaping this this version of reality um it's that there's this collective birthing process that's occurring right now on our planet that the planet itself, which, which has its own intelligence is, is going through as well alongside us that, that, you know, you could argue maybe we're even just a part of the ride, but that this, that this process is, you know, through millions of years of, of evolution, like we, we are actually moving through a very like accelerated portal moment. Yeah that's fairly unprecedented in the history of like consciousness expressing itself through form, right? In this particular dimension. I would agree. Of time, space, reality. Yeah. And, uh, and that 
this is a time, and this is like also the, I think it's an Incan prophecy, but there's many prophecies, indigenous prophecies around the world that speak of this, um, the eagle and the condor prophecy, that this is really a time where the beings who have done the deep spiritual work in previous incarnations um, or generations, however you want to look at it, are have chosen to be here at this time very specifically with a very specific purpose. And the ultimately the purpose is to anchor a frequency into the planet through our own bodies, through our bodies as the vessels that um, can usher in a new age, an age of, of unity consciousness, if you will, at the most kind of macro level, um, where the sense of separation that we generally believe is true that we experience in our reality is gives way and we, we we are able to experience the the joy and the bounty of being in form without losing the sense of unity and oneness that is actually at the quantum level true and so <clears throat> the process of calibrating our our vessels physical right. mental spiritual emotional bodies to be able to hold that frequency and anchor it into this dimension that process is a very intense process. It's a it's a it's a shedding process. It's a trans, transmutation process on a DNA level. It's um, it's basically like receiving more and more voltage into mm. your nervous system, you know, to ground. I like that metaphor. Yeah. Yeah, like like higher and higher frequencies, which are filled with information and light, and we we call it the codes, right? Um, and so those who are actively participating in this process are starting to experience a much more expansive version of reality, which is very stark contrast to what, what, what the, the narrative of the mainstream is, right? Which is like, everything's getting worse. We're more separated than ever. We're more distracted than ever. We're killing our planet. Like there's these very intense sort of apocalyptic narratives that are present right now. And, and also not just narratives, but there are a lot of people's real experience of life. What I was saying. But then there's also, and specifically in the people people's lives who are really doing their own shadow work, a very polar experience to that, where things are actually getting exponentially better and more beautiful. Now, I also want to acknowledge that we have that this community I'm speaking to is a very privileged community, and has the luxury of being able to do the inner work, right? Which in and of itself is a huge, huge privilege to have the space and the time and the resources to say, "Hey, let me sit with myself and look inside," versus trying right. to feed five kids, you know, on. $2 a day or whatever it is. Um, so, so there's a huge, obviously, that's a huge, the socioeconomic component to this consciousness conversation is very real. Yeah. But I think that for a long time, I felt guilt around that. I was like, I have so much. I've been given the freedom to explore my consciousness, to do my work, to have the tools and the healing modalities and the, and the education to really be able to expand myself in this way. And this guilt was present in that. And instead of feeling the guilt, I've really tried to transmute that energy and, and turn it into service so yeah. that, yes, I acknowledge my privilege. And now what am I going to do with it? What am I going to, how am I going to steward that privilege and that awareness that I've been able to cultivate to support other people in this transition? So the pressure that we're feeling all around us is kind of like the pressure of that the mother feels when it's time to give birth, you mm -hmm. know? So it's, it may feel really overwhelming and scary, but it's actually just part of a natural evolutionary process and it's just time to push. Mm -hmm. So I would say that that's kind of a very like- I love that. Meta perspective on what's happening. 
Yeah, I'll take a crack at it. So I guess um, one of the, the we, we we actually wrote a book and we actually created a coffee table book too, just for shits and giggles and while we had in our free time. <laughs> just because we were sitting around twiddling our thumbs too much. <laughs> but in that, we kind of flesh out this concept. Of the, the, it's, it's called the codes of becoming. Um, but we have the three stages of becoming um, that is really a, a hybrid of, of different philosophies we pulled together, but it's called sugar be honey. And the first, the first stage is kind of when you're climbing that first mountain of traditional success and, um, you're, you're, you're doing all the things society tells you to be doing, right? You get the job, you get the career, you get the degree, you know, you get the house with the white picket fence. Maybe you have a couple of Ferraris and that maybe you even have a private jet, right? Whatever that looks like, but we call it, that's the sugar mountain. And you can't really ever climb it. And we like the analogy of sugar because as you're climbing it, it's just like you're just not going anywhere. And eventually, mm-hmm. sometimes you wake up and you're like, okay, wait, I'm, I'm not getting anywhere and I'm not feeling fulfilled. And so you embark on, and, and in, in that first mountain, it's very much driven by this, this sense of like, <clears throat> what, what is, what, what's my preference? There's a selfish energy to it. And then you get to the, the second stage, which is the B. Uh, the hive, right? You're in service to the hive and you, you realize that uh, you start l- being a little more fulfilled uh, because you're in service to the hive. And in that stage, there's um, there's a real, it's like a mutual preference. So I, I care about your preferences and you care about my preferences, but I still care about my preferences and you still care about your preferences. And then the third stage of becoming, which there's an evolution is it's the honey stage. Um, and in that stage you just are right. And so you move beyond preference and you transcend preference. And I make decisions not based on what your preference is and not based on what my preference is, but in, but really in service. And the, the question I guess that I'd like to leave the listeners with is, is what would love choose? And so we're guided by that decision, that question, what would love choose? Mm -hmm. And, and sometimes that's, beyond our preference. Yeah. And, um, and so that's the third stage. And then, and then honey is just, just is like, it's, it's, you're just, it just oozes, um, Asria and, and our friend Mars, um, kind of came up with that analogy and it's just like, it, it, it's just, and the honey is representative of love, right? Just, and it just goes in everywhere. It gets in every nook and cranny. And so when you're operating mm-hmm. from that stage of like beyond preference, what would love choose? Um, I think God, that's, that's, that's a question. That's a really powerful thing. And we use it all the time. And it's like in little decisions, like, okay, like my preference is this or your preference is that. And then it's like, what well, would love choose? And you're like, shit. <laughs> all right. Yeah. yeah I, also, I know the answer. I like the, the, the we, we chose sugar and honey because they're both sweet. One is kind of this empty sweetness that is very addictive, but leaves you crashing. Yeah, that's great. And then honey is really a very nutritious substance um that that can heal like literally heal yeah so yeah we wanted to create a a visual analogy for this for these three stages that people could walk away with and and yeah i think that 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 question and originally the question is or it was um what does love want and then we were like is it fair to give love a want because love is whole in and of itself, right? It doesn't want anything, actually. I love that, yeah. So, what would love choose? I love that. Felt like a a more true way to phrase it. Yeah. 
the uh, question that I love to end the podcast on. I'm going to change it up because we got two here that have merged into a we, and so I'm going to change it a little bit. Um, I invite you all to imagine what it would feel like uh, to come to your last day. You know it's your last day. Maybe you're 80, 120, depending on what type of biohacking stories you believe. (laughs) Um, And that you know that at the end of this day, when you go to sleep, you're going to pass. And the two of you are going to get to do this whole day together. Um, How would you spend this final day? And uh, what would you do? Where would you be? And then at the very end, I'm going to ask one more question. Wow, that's a good question. <laughs> that's a good question. I should have listened to more of your podcast to get ahead of some <laughs> questions. Um, I think my answer, you know, if I, I guess I'll look at it through the lens of like what would love choose versus my preference, right? So my preference might be to have this like epic day of like luxury and, you know, bliss, right? Um, and, uh, but I, I think that like, what would love choose? I would, I would think like what we're building at becoming is I mean, we intend to have the, the most comprehensive psychedelic assisted personal development platform in the world in short order, like in a short, like what we're building is massive and I've built massive companies. And so I know how to scale. I might not know how to do any of the other shit we're doing. <laughs> And so I would think that I would spend a fair amount of my day, like, um, you know, trying to do like to set everyone up for success, set everyone up for success, leave, leave it like, like, here's a game plan. Here's whatever I would pour myself into that because I think it's beyond my preference. My preference might be to just, you know, lay in bed and fuck for 10 hours and, you know, whatever, (laughs) like give me a bottle of Viagra, right? Like, I don't know, but beyond my preference. I would pour myself into that because I think it's 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 the most loving thing, not just for me, but everybody around me, my family included. My my ex-wife's gonna be part of what we're building. My daughter's working with us. Like it is, it is not a business, right? And it's not none of it's designed to enrich ourselves, like it's all philanthropic in nature. But but that this thing that we're birthing collect as a group, right? It's we're it's gonna take an army to build what we're building. Um but I would pour myself into becoming uh, for that day and pour whatever I can, you know, force. And I would probably circle the wagons and talk to everyone that I'm, I have a lot of investments, and a lot of different things. I'd probably like, you know, have a heart to heart and be like, listen, I need you to support this. I need you. I bring the entrepreneurial side to the, to the business. And so I'd probably really quickly be like, you know, and I've already, already structured some of this, but like, these are your advisors on the financial side because Azria can birth the rest of it, right? But I would pour myself. But I'm into dying that. with you. Oh, he said both of us yeah. are dying. Oh shit. <laughs> I missed that part. Um, that makes it more complicated. Uh, I'd probably immediately decide who's gonna run it, becoming and like get them up to speed and can we still fucking like Yeah. Because yeah. yeah. <laughs> I would really like that. <laughs> That was gonna be my answer. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, obviously I'd want to connect with the family and stuff, but I would I would I would do everything I could to leave becoming um to be a success because I think it's the most significant impact and love that I can pour into the universe. Yeah. It's fitting that on your last day you would choose to make honey. Yeah. 
Yeah. I mean, I guess I th- to me, it's it's not an either or. It's a yes and. So, you know, we would start the day. Fucking epic, and honey making. Epic love making session. And, uh, and then maybe invite all of the people that we feel carry the, these codes of, of becoming and getting becoming off the ground and bring them all together and like light candles and have our favorite artists and musicians playing music and but still do what you're saying too like like dive in and have a mastermind and be like here's what needs to happen or here's where we want this to go because it's at the end of the day it's it's our legacy right so it's it's our it's our highest excitement to like see this live on well beyond us i like that our highest excitement i like that too yeah and then uh and then yeah i think who who would be part of the love making session <laughs> <laughs> get up i mean at that I point mean, it's a free for all right <laughs> we're we gonna have some company what's going on <laughs> we really need to start putting some thought into this um no but yeah and then i think we would yeah we would take a long hot bubble bath which is one of our favorite things to do and then another lovemaking session for bedtime and then just go to go to sleep. And the cool thing about the, both our answers is it's not all that different from what we do every day. Which is beautiful. Which yeah. is really beautiful. And I think that that's the first thing that came to mind. Like I often have this feeling. Yesterday we were on the plane and there was really crazy turbulence, like, like pretty gnarly turbulence for just a moment. And I had this thought. And I was like, okay, what if it was just over? Like, I'm, the, I'm you know? the same way. I'm like, like I'm going to die. Am I at peace with my life? <laughs> yeah. No, I went there. I was like, okay, like, if, if this was the moment where it's like all done, it doesn't feel like that's true and it's not ready to happen. But if it were, how would I feel about that? And yeah. to, to be in a genuine place of being like, I'd be so good. Like I'm so beyond grateful for the life I've been able to live so far. And I feel like I haven't wasted any of it. Like sure, I've had my years of unconsciousness and stuff, but since I've really had the opportunity to awaken and, and choose my own adventure, like I am savoring what I have and the preciousness of every moment. And like, that feels so good. I think there's nothing more fulfilling than to know that you're actually fully savoring what has been already given to you. Yeah. Um, so that, that feels like a beautiful, a beautiful place to be. Yeah. I think I feel that for the first time in my life, you've, you've felt that for some time. And the interesting thing is I've felt, you know, for most of my life, that scared little boy that couldn't live, that couldn't read was always trying to seek validation externally. And so I poured that into, you know, different things, whether it was sports or, you know, then being an entrepreneur. And then it was like, I, I need, it needs to be bigger. And, you know, we're doing a hundred million in revenue and we need to get to 200 million in revenue. We have a thousand employees. We need to get to 2000. Like there was this never satiated need to, to have more because one, I didn't feel safe in the world, mm-hmm. right? That scared little boy always felt like the dumbest kid in the room. Um, and no amount of things or external validation was actually going to satiate that. And so I spent most of my life with a, you know, feeling like an imposter and, and feeling like, um, really unsafe and needing more things to be. And then when I had the things and I had to protect the things. Right. Uh, and so it's been a real, you know, I, I didn't realize it. It's kind of like when you don't eat clean your whole life like when i was a kid i just ate like shit right and yeah. didn't know any better now i eat so clean that when i eat bad i like i feel it yep and so now i have the sense of like i wake up and i don't wake up with anxiety in my system that i didn't even know i used to live with perpetually like i, I had perpetual anxiety and now i'm like i wake up and i'm i'm like I, i'm at peace and it's such a surreal feeling because it's new to me in the last couple of years and 
it's a lot of it's to do with one, you know, Azri has been an incredible teacher to me and also all the plant-based medicine work and just, you know, I've really gone deep, you know, for a while there I was, I think I sat with Aya like 40 times in a couple of years and it was relentless. Um, but I came out the other side of it, like with this deep feeling of peace. And so I, I feel what you're feeling for the first time in my life. And like, if I died, like, even if we didn't have, I guess the answer is, is even if I didn't have that day, if I would have died last night before even being able to answer your question, how would I live my last day? Like we're, we're pretty much there. Like I have my estate plan styled and I know who's, you know, yeah, who's going to take over. And Also the book, like that was one of the biggest things I observed about finishing and publishing a book was like, okay, check, <laughs> you know, like it's not, it's not just all of these scattered ideas in like 34 journals that no one will probably ever look at. It's like, it's, it's synthesized, it's condensed, it's organized information. And even if that's all I contribute to this planet in this lifetime, like it's something that I feel proud of and I can stand behind. Yeah. And it's something that can live beyond me. That is a representation of the, the vastness of, of, of my human experience so far. So that was really interesting. Like that was a really powerful moment to realize that that was one of the biggest gifts mm. that writing the book and finishing the book actually gave us. And what's interesting is the second question I was going to ask feels like it's actually not worth asking, but I'll do it anyways, just to let you guys know that you guys are crushing it because you already really have the answer. But the question I normally ask people is the moment before you go to sleep on that last night, if you got to write a single message to your children and your children's children and your family, what would you write? And the funny thing is y'all are making becoming. So that's the, you guys don't need a napkin. You guys have a whole fucking thing. But if something else comes to mind, that is normally the last question that I ask. So the working title for the book before I met Benjamin, I had, I, I was always dancing with this idea of writing a book. And I, obviously before meeting him, I thought I would write it myself. And uh, it, it was nothing left unsaid. And so I think that that kind of answers your question, you know, there's actually nothing left to say or to write on a napkin because it's it's being said every day. Like we, we share our appreciation, our love, our gratitude for the people in our life on a daily basis. We're we're we've shared and said and spoken our truth and our words and in 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 book form and article form and and so there's 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 a real felt sense of that. So mm -hmm. maybe the maybe the napkin would just have a smiley face and a heart on it. <laughs> I like, love that. Crush the game, motherfuckers. We out, yo. <laughs> yeah, I don't I don't think I'm gonna I'm gonna go after that. That was a perfect answer. <laughs> Thank the two of you so much for the work that you both have done to be able to show up to this calling the way that y'all are. I'm very excited to dance along and support for the rest of my life. I fucking mm -hmm. feel it. And again, the impact that the two of you have made as a unit on me the first time that I met you has set the stage for what my standard is for the rest of my life. Mm -hmm. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, brother. Thank this you, brother. Awesome. We see you and uh, we, we look forward to just being witness to your journey. Yeah. Likewise. Yeah. Much mm -hmm. love. Big love.